0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com.
1: That's restishistorypod.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's second skin underwear
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
3: Just rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. Rejoice! (laughs) So, uh, Dominic, that was Mrs Thatcher. Um, Yeah. Obviously, well, I mean, maybe you thought it was Mrs Thatcher because it was so unerringly accurate. That was actually me. It was me all along.
0: Possibly Liam Neeson,
3: Tom. (laughs) (laughs) No, Um, you're just being jealous. So... Yeah, That was Mrs. Thatcher responding yeah. to the news that South Georgia had fallen to the task force. Um, yes. And my memory of that is that uh, she's on the steps of Downing Street and John Knott is with her, looking incredibly embarrassed by this kind of exultant tub thumping. Actually, no, because what actually happens, Tom, you're right that John Nott does look embarrassed at that point, but
0: it's very weird because they come out and she says... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, the Secretary of State for Defence has some very good news, which I I think he'd like to share with you. And he's sort of standing there like a child who's been asked to perform. Queue. <laughs> yes. And he looks incredibly miserable. I mean, he just looks fant- fantastically unhappy. And he reads this statement: "The White Ensign flies over South Georgia. God save the Queen." And um, it's only when the, and and she wasn't going to say anything, and then they turned to go in. And the newspaper people shout at questions. And she says then, just rejoice right. at that
3: news. So actually, um, not, I don't know, his demeanour is just so lugubrious. But that final rejoice, she kind of pops back out of the door, doesn't she? Yes, she of. does. <laughs> yeah. It's a sort of admonition to the press, isn't it? Yeah. Really? And She's, I suppose that um, it's, it's remembered because it captures something about her role in the war, that yeah. increasingly she is identified both by supporters of the war and opponents of it as absolutely the kind of animating force behind the whole task force. And the ambivalence within the country and internationally that is felt towards the war is channeled by an episode that happens in the wake of South Georgia, which is the sinking of an Argentine troop ship called the Belgrano.
0: Yeah. So it's about the point of South Georgia where she's told people to rejoice You know, basically, there's been virtually no loss of life. So, one Argentine soldier was killed in the in the capture of the islands, but since then, nobody, certainly nobody from Britain, has died, and there's been no large scale loss of life at all. the 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 public in Britain are delighted by South Georgia, and the press are absolutely beside themselves. We'll come to the press in a bit. And Mrs. Thatcher is increasingly playing this Churchillian role. Her rhetoric is full of allusions to Kipling and you know she says that Britain has found its role to fight for liberty and all this stuff but
3: but so far it is like a kind of um it's a it, game it's bloodless it's like a yes. computer game or yes, it is. or a, it is. A, a tv drama or something or a role playing game or something a game, a everybody's game. Yeah. playing
0: the part of exactly yeah. and then uh, there there is the mission that um i know you you wanted to talk about earlier which is uh britain has sent vulcan bombers to bomb the um the the airstrip in, in the falkland islands to stop the argentine's getting um supplies and that's
3: the one where they refuel
0: it in midair. they refuel in midair, which is I, I still don't quite understand how that works your brother's podcast would be able to explain they would they would spend entire episodes discussing refueling valves or something
3: but they do it well yeah. we, you know, yeah. we, 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 but in that <laughs> podcast we don't go in for that malarkey <laughs> yeah. at all yeah.
0: but they do it and this is seen as this tremendous feat even though they don't manage to knock out the airfield completely but then the day after that i think pretty much it's a sunday she's in checkers the defense chiefs arrive and they say they need to talk to her urgently And they basically say, we've had a request from the commander of the task force in the South Atlantic, which is steaming south. Um, There are two Argentine ships in particular that have been shadowing the task force that um, they're alarmed about. One they've already talked about, which is the the Cinco de Mayo, 25th of May. Um, And the other one is named after a, a hero of the Argentine War of Independence who was called General Belgrano. The General Belgrano is this sort of ageing cruiser with more than a 1,000 men on board. And the British commanders would like permission to, to sink the Belgrano. Now, this is the single most controversial episode of the war, uh, one of the most controversial episodes of Mrs Thatcher's whole career. If you've seen the film The Iron Lady with
3: Meryl Streep, you will remember that she shouts, Sink it! <laughs> um, but right. This is- I, I, and Dominic, what makes this uh, controversial? Is that the British have um, said that they're setting up an exclusion zone, a total exclusion zone, That's yeah. two hundred miles around the Falklands, Agreed. and that that any Argentine ship found within that will be shot, will, will be sunk, and attacked. Yeah. yeah, but this does not mean that they're committed to not attack ships outside the exclusion zone. Yeah, so often, right? often, right?
0: So often, when you're if you're on if you loiter, Tom, as I as I do every day on the Guardian website, reading the comments underneath articles, people will often say, I ah, it wasn't the exclusion zone, therefore it shouldn't have been. It was illegal to attack it. It was a war crime and stuff. Now, that's completely wrong. When the British said there was a total exclusion zone around the Falklands, they did not, they, they explicitly said, if you're an Argentine ship, going 210 miles or 220 miles beyond the Falklands does not get you off the hook. If you're a danger to their forces...
3: And they will sink you wherever so you are. So what's the point of the total exclusion zone if they're still going to attack ships outside it? The exclusion zone is basically saying, especially for other ships, don't come into the exclusion zone. Okay, so it's
0: not just you know, targeted at the, This is a designated kind of theatre of war, basically. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I'm, I know there'll be people who are absolute experts on this sort of stuff, listen to this and think, that, say, well, <laughs> that's not right, blah, blah, blah. But, but basically, this is sort of saying, this is the battlefield, everybody else stay out. And if our, any Argentine ship in this area, we will sink you. But, but that doesn't we, we, mean... but,
2: but,
3: but we might still sink you if you're outside it. Yeah, if you're a, a threat war. to our ships. And you've so they, invaded, so, you invaded our islands.
0: So what's happening is the Belgrano is this cruiser. It's <laughs> it's supported by destroyers. I mean, it's not there on a kind of... It hasn't been rented for a pleasure outing. It's there for a good reason, you know, to attack the task force. The Argentine commander, who is Rear Admiral Ayara, he has a plan with a sort of pincer movement. He has the Ventus Cinque de Mayo in the north and the Belgrano in the south. And between them, they will...
3: They will target Britain's
0: aircraft carriers. That is because, that, because
3: the aircraft carriers. If the aircraft carriers go down, then yeah, the, basically you, the task force is sunk. Pretty much, I think you need
0: at least one air aircraft cover. carrier, ideally two, to give you the air cover and stuff. Because yep. where else are you going to? Your plane's going to take off from. So, uh, Admiral Woodward, who's in charge of the task force, says to Mrs. Thatcher, "We'd like to attack the Belgrano. Please, it's outside. Because you have to ask permission. This is the thing. If it's outside the exclusion zone." So when he asks permission, he doesn't ask permission, thinking there's any
3: possibility she will say no. I mean, it's any prime minister,
0: I it's, think, it's by box large,
3: would say would say yes because you know. uh, counterfactual, she says no, and the Belgrano then sinks the aircraft carrier, <laughs>
0: right? And then, then yeah. she's damned for all eternity,
3: yeah. Um, yeah. In in British
0: reputation, it takes her and her ministers twenty minutes to say yes. It's just a no brainer for them. Now the complicated thing is this. The Belgrano looks like it's sailing towards the fleet, but by the time the order then gets to Admiral Woodward, the Belgrano has changed its course. So what it's doing is zigzagging, and the Argentines had a plan for the attack, but in the small hours of Sunday morning, the weather has changed, and the captain of the Belgrano, his man called Hector Albonzo, he is told, head back towards the mainland and await further orders for the time being, so don't attack immediately. He's not told – I mean, obviously, this doesn't mean never attack. It just means hold your horses. Um, So when the the British submarine, the Conqueror, which has been told to sink the Belgrano, when it sees the Belgrano, the fact direction in which it's sailing is irrelevant to them. So the the captain just basically tracks the Belgrano for two hours. Um, He twice almost has it. Doesn't quite get it. But then at 3.57, I think it is in the afternoon, um, Belgrano's in his sights. Conqueror opens fire. Two massive hits. Um, probably about 200 people are killed immediately by the kind of fireball ripping through the corridors of the Belgrano. In total, 323 Argentine sailors and or servicemen were killed. A third of them were conscripts. You have very young men. More than 700 of them survive on these life rafts. So if you've ever seen the photo of the Belgrano sinking, yeah. it's actually the life rafts, which are kind of orange, yeah. that are in the, the foreground. And actually with that, the Argentine admirals say, oh, the plan is destroyed. Go back to port. So the rest of their fleet are knocked out by this one act of sinking
3: the Bolgrano. So militarily, it's very successful. Yeah. So I but, mean, there's absolutely militarily, there's absolutely no debate about it. But in human terms, three, as you say, three hundred and twenty three men are killed. And yeah. so, um, I mean, I suppose globally, suddenly this is no longer a kind of opera buffet, um, right? comic carry on up the Khyber es- escapade. Suddenly yeah. pe- people are dying very horribly.
0: And I think it also seems it's, it's the fact that the major casualties are inflicted by the British who suddenly seem like the bully. NATO bullies. The NATO bullies against the sort of plucky South
3: Americans. Yes. That's that's how it plays. Okay, so that plays out internationally. And, and it's, to a degree it has that impact in Britain as well. So it, yeah. it serves to confirm people who are opposed to the war absolutely in their conviction that there's you know this is deeply immoral. And I think that it's
0: a woman who orders it, Tom, who signs it off. I mean, it's not her idea. It comes to her for to, the to sign-off. And the fact that it's a woman who does it, people sort of say, how could a woman of all people, how ghastly, this dreadful woman, you know, who's presided over unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all that stuff. But there are also conspiracy theories, of course, about the yeah. sinking of the Belgrano. So the right. most famous one is um, the one propounded by the Labour MP, Tam Dial. And he says – the Peruvians had cooked up a peace proposal and Mrs. Thatcher knew of the peace proposal and she deliberately ordered the sinking of the Belgrano in order to, um, to destroy any chance for peace because she craved war. And, um, this is just, I mean, I'll pin my colors to the mast. It's utter, utter nonsense. It wasn't her idea to attack the Belgrano. The request came from below from the, 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 from the, the, na- the Navy, um, she didn't know about the Peruvian peace proposal. And, and what's really interesting is what the Argentines themselves think about the Baganera. So this is the aspect that you never see in the British sort of the, the the sort of more self-flagellating British commentary about this. So the the guy who was running the, the, the operation, Rear Admiral Ayala, he basically He told the historian Martin Middlebrook, he said, we knew perfectly well the entire South Atlantic was an operational theatre for both sides. We, as professionals, said it was just too bad that we lost the Belgrano. The captain of the ship himself, Hector Bonzo, he said there was absolutely nothing wrong with the British attacking us. It was what we expected. It was completely reasonable. And there was an amazing thing I found, which I don't think had been written about before. Um, In 2005, an Argentine newspaper referred to the sinking of the Belgrano offhand as a war crime. And the former head of the Argentine Navy wrote a letter of complaint to the newspaper, obviously in Spanish, um, and he's, which which read as follows. He said it was not a war crime but a combat action. The Belgrano and the other ships were a threat and a danger to the British. It was not a violation of international law. It was an act of war. Um, so I don't think there's actually – the funny thing about the Belgrano controversy is I don't actually really
3: think there's any great debate about it. Okay, well, Dominic, so in which case the question then rises, well, why is it so controversial? And I would – put it to you that yeah one of the reasons why it's so controversial is that um it was greeted by a british tabloid the Sun, with what is probably the most notorious headline in the entire history of the british press yeah. which was gotcha
0: our lads sink gunboat and whole cruiser the navy had the arges on their knees last night after a devastating double punch wallop wallop etc etc and and even
3: they even they the sun become embarrassed about this and well they changed they 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 changed changed they changed the headline yeah but essentially the the press coverage on both sides as always tends to happen as we saw with, with brexit entrenches opinions yeah of course knowing what the other side think kind of encourages um editors on both sides to kind of go further and
0: further and further. And this definitely happened with the Falklands. So The Sun, which had only recently overtaken the Mirror in the late 70s to become the best-selling newspaper in Britain, Rupert Murdoch's paper, sort of populist, very pro-Thatcher, conservative, ultra-patriotic. Um, so for our overseas listeners, I mean, The Sun played an an absolutely gigantic part in the kind of national imagination in the 80s, um, loved and loathed in equal measure, um, what is it? About twelve million readers or something? Just enormous readership, and the Sun right from the beginning embraced the war with absolutely wholehearted. Well, well can,
3: can I can I read again a top a top historian, namely yourself, God. on this? <laughs> so you, you describe, I think I was it the news editor or something who's been, a, he's been on holiday. And he comes back to the, the sun office and he finds the news editor wearing a naval officer's cap and insisted on being called commander while a giant map of the South Atlantic had been pinned up beneath a newly installed portrait of Sir Winston Churchill. Yeah. So they go full in and this is famously parodied by private eye satirical magazine. Yeah, the, the, the headline is "Kill an RG and Win a Metro." Yeah, but I mean that's not. It's hard to distinguish
0: that from because Kelvin McKenzie, the editor of the Sun, famously, when he saw the parody, he said, "That's such a brilliant idea. Why didn't we think of that?" Because they do all kinds of. So they they run again and again the same headline during the peace negotiations, which is "Stick it up your hunter." Um, they like it so much, they make T-shirts, the Sun readers, um, sensational T-shirts, they call them, that people can 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 write in and get these T-shirts. They run a column where you um, you can send in Argentine anti-Argentine jokes. So the column invites you to give those damn arges a whole lot of bargy by wow. sending in the best anti-Argentine, and which they will reward you with a tin of non-Argentine corned beef. Mm-hmm um they do various stunts so uh, something that is very um controversial as well as the gotcha they they sponsor a missile um and they get, and they get um they, they write stick it up your hunter on the missile and they put the big story is saying um, to Gautieri's gauchos with love from the sun all this sort of stuff
3: and don't they also um they they donate massive portraits of Page three models, top models. three models. Yeah, um, yeah. they to, airlift to, them. They airlift them. <laughs> they airlift them to Ascension Island, so they, that they can <laughs> go on. They airlift <laughs> them, so they
0: airlift them out to the fleet, so the task force will have something to look at when they're when they're on route. So there's a whole series of. The, I mean, they absolutely, you know, they absolutely go for it in, in terms of these sort of jingoistic stunts, which, as you say, leave some people absolutely appalled. And um, and funnily enough, the Sun's readership actually declines, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. During yeah. the um, Okay, but but the sun also it accuses it absolutely unrepentantly accuses critics of the war of being traitors. I mean its a big rival, the Daily Star, famously commissioned a lawyer to see if um Tony Benn could be invest- could be prosecuted for treason for opposing the war. Um, they accuse the Daily Mirror of being traitors. What is it but treason? They say in this huge editorial.
3: The organisation that they really go after is the BBC. So well, you, the, yeah, the, you've the, been guilty of this. The British Broadcasting Corporation, <laughs> yes, but but um, not calling them our our troops. After the Belgrano, is it on Newsnight? Peter Snow, father of uh, Dan, refers to the the British. Can we trust the British? And this generates blowback, doesn't it?
0: Massive. So this is on Newsnight. He says, "We we know that the Argentines are not telling us the truth, but we can't be sure about it. the British." will... And when he does, the the BBC are deluge with complaints, not least from Conservative backbenchers saying, "How dare you call us the British and sift imply that our... we have propaganda?" Exactly, exactly. So they get the most, you know, sort of intense abuse. But then they also do a panorama, um, a, a sort of anti addition of panorama, which is this big sort of current affairs flagship news program where they sort of look at the case against war. Mm. They interview people who they have a uh, sort of report from Buenos Aires. They have interviews with with dissenting MPs like Tory backbenchers who had fought in World War II and don't think the war was a good idea. And this gets a colossal amount of flack. Uh, Dennis Thatcher basically says, you know, I'll never trust the BBC again. They're pinkos. And I mean, not that he stuff. ever did in the first place. No,
3: I think it's fair <laughs> to say. You know, the Daily Express has a big thing about traitor armour. And so obviously the sinking of the Belgrano amplifies this debate, but then, what, it, yeah. but, but then what further sharpens it is the sinking of a British ship, um, HMS Sheffield. And what, one of the kind of, one of the overriding memories, I think for everybody who lived through the Falklands war and watched it on British TV was the lugubrious tones of um, Ian MacDonald, who was the Ministry of Defence spokesman. So, so I've got it here and, and, he announced it as though he was announcing the cricket score i don't think you'll be able to do it as boringly as he did it tom i mean it's got, in the course of its duties within the total exclusion zone hms sheffield a type 42 destroyer was attacked and hit late this afternoon by an argentine missile and it was that tension the contrast between the absolute bled of emotion and the thought of how many lives have been lost that i think i you know as i say i think it's one of the over it's certainly one of my overriding memories
0: yeah he became a real you know, do you know the weird thing he 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 became this huge public figure because of his incredibly slow and lugubrious delivery of this either good or bad news and um he had a
3: woman started stalking him well get he's he's so all the men all the men involved in this they all wear kind of thick glasses graying hair balding very unfashionable suits <laughs> and the idea that any of them could be sex symbols yeah seems improbable but he was he was one of the most improbable he had to get the security men at the ministry of defense
0: to protect him from this woman who for whom he was who was obsessed with him I mean it just seemed absolutely bizarre that he was announcing ship losses um but yeah so the Sheffield only so what was the impact I mean, of that well, 20 men were lost on the Sheffield out of a crew of about almost 300, I think. So it's, it, you know... Uh, and then there's another HMS Coventry, isn't there? Later really? on, exactly. So, so it's not comparable yeah. with the Belgrano, But of course, it's a massive... It's a tragedy for those people who do die in their families. It's a, the, the 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 casualty figures are never released immediately. So they always appear at first to be more than they are. And yeah, I think it makes a huge dent in... It doesn't dent public opinion. But, it, but there's a sort of – there's a sense of loss. Um, human, it's really interesting how human life is much dearer in 1982 than it was, let's say, in the 1940s. So by the standards of the Second or World War – Or in the War Vietnam War or
2: – Well, Britain has not
0: known anything yeah. about the Vietnam War. Uh, and human life is so much dearer in 1982 that losses that to previous generations would have seemed, I mean, I don't want to say trivial, but they'd have seemed slight
3: by comparison – assume colossal proportions i mean really tragic proportions there's no real television coverage so robert harris says about this that it's the worst reported war since the crimea which is quite something takes three weeks
0: for the film footage to get back from the south atlantic so so it's all happening in some shadowy realm of the imagination almost you don't you don't even see still photos often of these things
3: and so and so dominic does does the loss of of HMS Sheffield, Does that? How, how worrying is that for the British High Command? And does it in any way threaten? Because by this point, presumably, they're closing in on the Falklands themselves. They
0: are closing in. I don't think it does threaten the success of the operation. But the the combination of the Belgrano and the Sheffield and the international kind of outcry, lots of people are really shocked by it, so many people are being killed, um, means that the government feels pressure to, particularly from the Americans, um to 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 compromise so again we talked about it previously uh what happens and which is never really talked about in in retrospectives of margaret thatcher and the falklands is that in the aftermath of the loss of the sheffield they again agree to compromise so now they this peru deal that she supposedly wanted to scupper by sinking the belgrano which is a myth but she accepts the peru deal so on the fifth of May, the cabinet agree that they're actually divided, but she is the decisive voice, and she says we should take the deal. And the deal basically is the same old deal as before, just just fiddled with, which is both the British and the Argentines will withdraw, and the there will be a sort of a, a UN administration or an administration of different countries while the sovereignty of the islands is decided, which almost certainly means that they will be they will end up under Argentine sovereignty. And she accepts the deal, and yet again the Argentines let her off the hook. Galtieri says no; he's just not prepared to withdraw his troops. And, and how long said... is
3: this before the British actually reach the Falklands?
0: Um, so this is about two weeks.
3: So this is the fifth of May or so. And is that? And, and when that happens, is that? Is that it? No, even then it's not it, Tom. So there's then two more weeks of the of the of
0: the fleet sailing. They're, they're now virtually at the edge of the total exclusion zone, so they're just a couple of hundred miles from the Falkland Islands. And on the 16th of May, the government makes a final offer to the Argentine government. It's pretty much the same deal with a UN administration taking um, coming in to run the Falklands. Now, here's an extraordinary thing. They, they agreed the final offer, and Mrs. Thatcher's UN ambassador actually says to her, are you sure you want to send that offer because that's giving up quite a lot that's that will probably end up with argentina getting sovereignty of the islands at the end and she says yep i do want to send the offer they send the offer and they the argentines are given until the 18th i think it is or the 19th of may to accept it the deadline expires they have not accepted it so at that point they basically give the go ahead go for the go for the landing so the the fleet of have Sailed on and on, they are very close now, and you have this incredibly dramatic,
3: uh, sort of D-Day style landing scenario. Well, hold so, on, Dominic, hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on. This is, I mean, this is too dramatic a moment not oh, to have oh, a break. You love a so, cliffhanger, so let's go and, and listen to some adverts. Unless you're a member of the uh, of the Rest of History Club, in which case you won't have to listen to adverts. Um, yeah. and when we come back, they're on the islands already in the Rest of History Club. Um, they've already, the, yeah, the Union Jack has already been run up over Port Stanley. Spoiler.
1: Um, when when we come back, let's listen to how what happens when the British actually
3: land on the soil of the Falklands.
1: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin underwear you know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And, of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
3: Hello. Before we return to the Falklands War, we just wanted to talk about um, another article that has uh, recently gone up on the web page of our friends at Unheard. That is u n U-N-H-E-R-D, Unheard dot com. Dominic, yes. Um, and this is uh, well, actually, you know, it's it's an article that does relate to the history of modern Britain. Um, does it's, indeed. It's a, an article about Cumbernauld which is a, a new town wasn't it that was built in the 60s in kind of very concrete what would now be called brutalist style. It was brutalist. So it's in North Lanarkshire in
0: Scotland Cumbernauld. Uh it was put up the city center was put up in um 1967 I think. It's an absolute sort of temple to 60s idealism um and then the collapse of that idealism in the 1970s when it started rotting and there was all problems with damp and graffiti and crime and stuff. And I, I believe the article is by a guy called Daniel Calder, and is, and is he he's talking about the the destruction of this dream and the fact that the, the
3: buildings are about to be destroyed, aren't they? And That's architectural right, yeah.
0: historians are very agitated about this.
3: Yes, they are. Although I gather that people who actually live there are less agitated, <laughs> delighted. <laughs> and I gather that Daniel Calder actually spent time in the Soviet Union. Perhaps, you know, his experience isn't entirely confined to Scotland when writing about brutalist stuff. Well, shall I tell you what he writes, Tom? Yeah, he says, um, glimpses of
0: Cumbernauld's town centre from the window of the bus over the years have not done justice to the scale of the architectural catastrophe. It reminded me of the vast Ishmash plant in Udmertia, Russia, where they pump out AK-47s and other weapons. But Ishmash at least had a decorative historical entrance. With the general absence of windows and the abundance of pipes and wires in Cumbernauld town centre, everything looks like the back of something um and of course it's interesting because a lot of people are now very very nostalgic in a way about brutalist architecture they see it as a lost utopianism i absolutely hate it personally entirely happy to see it the trouble down. is i think I, I quite like it
3: existing but i wouldn't live in it I, I go the full prince charles on this yeah i
0: was about to you say know, that. a bit of
3: columns pediments that kind of thing georgian and British yeah, is
0: all about Georgian. Yeah. Um but architectural historians and stuff would say, Tom, this is gross reactionary conservatism on your part. I don't care. And that you you're you're all about hierarchy and order and you and keeping the you know,
3: you don't care about social democratic idealism. But I worry that in saying that I'm not pushing it back against herd mentality, which is what I'm oh, all about. Because yeah. I suspect that most people probably agree with me. Unless they work in architecture departments. I mean, I'm aware, you know, it's a wholly unoriginal perspective. Anyway, it's a fabulous article. Um, Do read it and you can read a lot else as well on their site. We've got a special offer, uh, which is open to you. The rest is history listener. Uh, It's £1 a week normally. But if you sign up for your first 10 weeks, you get it free. And you'll get four long pieces a day. You'll get a a podcast and YouTube interviews
0: showcasing new and independent thinking. Come on over. It says here, unheard.com slash rest, go and subscribe, then come back to us and we'll continue with the second half of our own tremendous podcast. Thank you.
3: Hello, welcome back to The Restless History, Falklands War special and Dominic Sandbrook. We have reached the climactic point. The task force has steamed all its way from southern England down to the Falklands and we have reached the point where British troops land on the Falklands. So, what yeah. happens next?
0: Well, Tom, there are some brilliant. Uh, there's lots of really good Falkland soldiers' memoirs. I think two of the best are by Ken Lukoviac and Vincent Bramley. I think we're both paratroopers. Really good. Um, and uh, Vincent Bramley has a, a wonderful description of the platoon commander calling all the NCOs together. They've sailed into the total exclusion zone. They've. It's all been high jinks on the ships till mm-hmm. now it's been sunbathing, giant page three giant page threes yeah. it's been a great laugh basically and now the platoon commanders say right this is it and and the mood completely changes It's very tense he says you know um uh they can feel the fear they can feel it in their kind of in their stomachs these are young men by and large who've mm. never envisaged i mean they're, they're not conscripts they're professional soldiers but they have never really still, envisaged i mean that this is anything yeah. like this. i mean and, and also an amphibious landing Famously very difficult, you know, jumping off basically into the unknown, wading up the beach. It's very D Day, um, but it's colder, also, right? But it's, yes, I mean, it's colder yeah. because D Day is in the summer. So, but it's terrifying. First, they have to get off the Canberra, which is the big kind of cruise ship. They have to get onto the assault ship Intrepid, which they do, and and he has this great description that it's the dead. You know, the joking is over. So and, and so, where are they going to land? So we've never really talked madly about the geography of the Falkland Islands. There are two islands, West Falkland and East Falkland. Um, everything, all the action is really on East Falkland. Um, so Stanley is on East Falkland, but Stanley's over on the East. They know that the Argentine forces, thousands of them are in, basically in Stanley. They're going to land on the other side um, in a bay called San Carlos. They're almost a bit like kind of tiny fjords, I suppose, um, kind of low-level fjords. I mean, that's probably geographically completely the wrong expression, but you kind of know what I mean. They're going to land there. They're going to land at night. They've got to hope that the Argentines don't know exactly where they're going to land, uh, because they'll be sitting ducks. They'll just be sitting there unloading all the troops. So midnight on the 20th, 21st of May, they're kind of in position. They get the, they get the the go ahead. They all go down. They're waiting. Um, they're waiting for like they're packed in. They're waiting for this kind of green light to come on. Um, the green light finally comes on. They all get into their little landing craft. And then they're kind of bobbing. Um, through this freezing sort of sea towards the lands, They can see tracer fire up above them. You know, they're, they're so nervous. They're, they're complete sitting ducks, but they get there. They haven't been attacked. And then they're off. They're, their ramps go down. They're up. They're on the beach. And amazingly, um, the Argentines have not cottoned on to the fact they're there and will not for a few hours. So basically... I mean, that's, very, that's very
3: poor. But well, it is poor. But, I mean, it's also result for the British. Yeah, I mean, it is. But, I mean, you know, you know that... I mean you know there's a landing coming. Yeah, but they don't know where. Well, why they
0: don't know they they where they've got
3: helicopters.
0: Well they have it's kind of stuff. buzzing around. I mean, they've and they've got they've got Yeah, but it's it's the dead of night. Well have got lights. You know <laughs> Torches. Well, you should go on your brother's podcast and he will explain the, the <laughs> okay. military All which right. I, the logistics which I can't really do. But anyway, they get off. I mean there's a, there's wonderful stories 'cause the the task force have journalists embedded with them. So most famously, Max Hastings, and this is where what what makes his name basically. So a lot of our listeners will know as a historian, but before that was a newspaper editor, and before that was this correspondent who correspondent, really yeah. became the sort of the, the the voice and the kind of became the pen of of the Falklands campaign. They've landed, and there's this tiny hamlet called San Carlos. Um, and the the Royal Marines go to the farmhouse, and the bloke who opens the door to them says, "You're British. We've we've been expecting you for two or three nights." And his wife says, "We were getting fed up and waiting for you." <laughs> uh, a guy from the Sunday Times is with another detachment, they get to a farm, a farm guy's, uh, um, cottage, and he opens the door and he offers them some soup. And his first thing he says, he said, "Did Leeds United get relegated?" <laughs> so, so it's very sort of that's the 1950s kind of comedy, yes. um, yeah. Sort of even wisdom, exactly aspect yeah. to it. So, so there they are. They've 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 landed without the loss of a single man. But basically, by daylight, the Argentines know they're there, so they send in their fighters. They immediately hit two ships. That's Argonaut and Antrim. Um, so lives are now being lost, and basically, there's now a race to unload all the equipment, get all the stuff off, because there's no like great supply line back to London. Mm. They have brought all their stuff with them, and if it's destroyed, too it's bad. destroyed. Yep. Right, but they managed to get all the stuff off. It's at this point that Coventry, you mentioned Coventry mm-hmm. earlier on, um, it's a Type 42 destroyer like Sheffield, that that is hit. 19 men are killed on Coventry. Most of them get off. By the 27th, which is basically six days, um, they've managed to unload all their stuff. So they've unloaded 3,000 men and all their gear, all their ammo, ammunition, their vehicles, whatever they need, and off they go. So so now you're into a completely different phase of the campaign, which is the kind of land campaign. And at this point, you know, the, the government's just going to go for it. There's going to be no more talk of peace talks. Once they've got the men on the islands and lives are being lost, they're just going to do it. And the first sort of battle, I mean, I say battle, they're obviously not Second World War type battles. They're much smaller, but they're still very bloody and vicious. And almost because they're smaller, they're often hand-to-hand at times, which makes them... You know, there's a sort of intensity to them. So the first thing they do is they actually turn, some of them turn slightly back on themselves, away from Port Stanley to a place called Goose Green, which is on an isthmus, which connects the two halves of East Falkland. And the reason they do that is the Argentines have a kind of garrison of a thousand men there. And the British government say, you have to knock that out because we need an early land success. And even though the commander doesn't really want to do it, Julian Thompson he is told you have to do it because we need a land victory immediately. We're not just going to leave this garrison there. You've got to basically eliminate it. This is where you get the real martyr. So this is uh, Colonel H. Jones. Colonel H. Jones, Old Etonian, who is uh, the commanding officer of 2 Para, who's always had a reputation for sort of devil-may-care kind of recklessness and he leads his men on this. It was a planned as a raid, but he basically wants it to be a big battle. And he leads them. Um, they The fighting starts at 2 in the morning on the 28th of May. They get basically bogged down and stuff, and he decides he's going to do a bit of a Henry V. He just and, charges up the hill. And just he? charge up, yeah, char, char, lead the charge. And he's shot down and killed. But Britain ends up winning. The British end up winning the Battle of Goose Green. And, and is that because of the... His, his charge does that no they'd have won it of, anyway they'd have won okay. anyway so there's always been a bit of a debate among military historians about um was this a need need needless, needless. headstrong yeah i mean i'm not a military historian as some people people who are military <laughs> historians, listening to this will probably know so people are often arguing in the about the minutiae of these attacks rather like you know sports reporters would argue about yeah. a scrum or something or yeah a penalty you know, yeah the, the the but also there are there's never a sort of definitive account
3: because there's always Battles are so confusing, so there's always sort of competing but, but versions said, uh, of the truth. that the British needed um, uh, a victory. Did they also need a war hero? I mean, do you think there's I a I mean, they party- didn't need one, but they were happy to have one. So the press immediately, he's got a wife. I mean, they couldn't, so they couldn't say, well, I mean, this is kind of insane incompetence, no, lunatic but, incompetence. But I don't, think, I don't think, I think it would be very harsh and unfair to say it was those Well, things. some people have said that, haven't they? Yeah, you're right. Okay, fair enough.
0: They have. Some people have. Um, you're absolutely right. The press immediately, they turn his widow into a great... Uh, Sarah or Sarah Jones—they turn her into this great martyr. She's a sort of photogenic widow with young children, I think. Um, so, so absolutely yes, he becomes the the face of the fallen, right? If you like, okay. And the press yes. and, and and everyone needs yeah. heroes, exactly. Um, so then, so what's that? That's uh, about twenty eighth of May. Then there was one last attempt to give peace. Uh, um, so a back to back <laughs> to the comedy. Very good. Um, so this is um, from Ronald Reagan he rings mrs thatcher we have a transcript of the call it's very funny um she's absolutely she she, she's no 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 ronald no um he i didn't lose some of my finest ships and my finest lives to leave quietly under a ceasefire without the argentines withdrawing just suppose alaska was invaded it's a long way away from you put all your people up there to retake it you wouldn't you wouldn't withdraw you wouldn't do it and reagan if you read the transcript he starts off talking quite a lot
3: well and then
0: and then when you get to about page two it's like margaret i uh but i uh, Margaret, right. I, I, and at the end, he says, he just says, uh, well, Margaret, I, I know I've intruded. And then, sorry, that was, that almost veered into my Donald Trump, which it shouldn't have done. Um, but anyway, she says, Oh, no, you haven't intruded at all, Ron. You know how you'd feel if you went through the same conflict. And off he goes, you know, with his tail between his legs, that she's not going to compromise now, you know. And to be fair to, the, she's made, the British have made a lot of attempts to compromise. Mm-hmm. But the Argentines were having none of it. So the Argentine, there's this poor bloke called Mario Benjamin Menendez, who's their guy who's been put in his. He, a... He's Arabic, is he? <laughs> he is. <laughs> I imagine he's got Moorish antecedents, Tom, okay, maybe. So that's you know. hence the pronunciation. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I look at him and I see multicultural heritage. Right. Um so <laughs> Yeah. He's, um, he's part of that extraordinary mix that you get in the medieval period in Spain. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, philosophy, bubbling fountains, the Alhambra, yeah. all that. Yeah. Anyway, he's pitched up in uh, Stanley. And uh, he basically says to General Galtieri, we are sunk, we are finished, unless you can send support. General Galtieri says, you know, no support is coming, you must hold out. Menéndez sp- publishes, I have to say, an absolutely splendid call to arms. The adversary is getting ready to attack Puerto Argentino which is what they call poor Stanley, with a rash and hateful intention of conquering the capital of the Malvinas. Not only must we beat them, we must do it in such a way that their defeat is so crushing that they will never again have the impertinence to invade our land, to arms, to battle. It's very kind of Aragorn. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, And and does it have the desired effect? No, it doesn't. (laughs) No, because the Argentine soldiers are incredibly miserable. Many of them by this point have actually said you know, they they write in letters and diaries and, or memoirs. They say, basically by this point, we're desperate just for the British to arrive so that we can go home. They're really cold. They're really miserable. They don't have enough rations. They hate their officers who treat them like dirt. Um, So their morale is pretty low. So you have a couple more, uh, one more tragedy for the British, which is landing more troops, um, a place called Bluff Cove, which is. Oh, is that, is that
3: the Galahad? So this is the Galahad. And Simon which, Weston.
0: Simon Weston, who is the other great British yep. war hero, yep. who, who suffers burns to 46% of his body, um, mm. is, is very, very badly hurt. Very he loses his eyelids and his ears and mm. stuff like this, but survives and then becomes the face of kind of heroism. So 49 men are killed there. But, I mean, by this point, it's pretty obvious. The British are a professional army, incredibly well-trained very well armed, got all the right equipment, absolutely poised for this. This is what they've been preparing for. The Argentines are conscripts. There's only really going to be one winner. The British troops are poised around Stanley. So Stanley's, I mean, they're described as kind of Mount this, Mount that, um, but they're not really mountains. They're kind of hills. I mean, they're not mm-hmm. kind of the Alps or something. Um, so these hills like Mount Longdon, Mount Harriet, and there's one called Two Sisters, which is two kind of peaks. And basically what the British are going to, have to do is just attack um usually uh, very late at night or first thing in the morning sort of in the early hours um so it's kind of night fighting which is always really confused and horrible and it's kind of close quarters basically work their way up these slopes clean out the argentine trenches and positions at the top and and you know all the accounts of this that you get from the i mean we haven't really dug into the kind of military side of it because it's not what we do but when you read the soldiers memoirs they are they're they are it's horrible they're really horrible. So there's, um, I mean, I can't quote everything. Um, but for example, in Vincent Bramley's, um, memoir, there's a point where an army medic says to him, I've done all the training possible for this. And it still hasn't been what I thought it would be. And these, cause nothing prepares them for the, their friends being shot around them. People's brains falling. So out. what are the casualties? Well, they're not massive. So they're, they're sort of, Dozens, um, sometimes just a handful of people, certainly the British side, because the British, they're like a clockwork machine mm. sort of working perfectly. So the casualties aren't great. So, for example, on Longdon, the British lose um, 23 men. On Two Sisters, they lose eight. On Mount Harriet, they lose seven. So they're quite – they're not not—they're not massive by any means. Um, but this is, again, there's they're something miserable. about yeah. the sort of the intimacy of it, I
3: suppose, that makes it seem – Do you think also – I mean uh, – the Falklands sounds very like the kind of terrain on which the British Army train, so yeah. the Highlands or Brecon Beacons or or something that, yeah. like that. Um, that. That perhaps you know you've done it so many times on that in that kind of train and then suddenly you really are. Lo- I mean, maybe the fact it seems so familiar makes it almost worse. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I can see what you mean. The fact that it feels like an exercise, but it's not, and people yeah. are actually dropping down yeah. around you.
3: Yeah, I think there's some. Um... I mean, it's an interesting.
0: I found this really interesting to study and to write about because I'd never really written about war. And um, when you read the soldiers' memoirs, one thing they they talk about, which sometimes comes up in particularly in the sort of left leaning press accounts of the Falklands, are what we would call atrocities. So that is bayoneting prisoners, um, Mm -hmm. cutting off the ears of. As what? As trophies? As trophies. Yeah. Um, there's a bit in – I can't remember whose uh, book it is. I think it might be Ken Lukowiak where he says um, – oh, no, it's Vincent Bramley. He says one of his friends picks up a, a man's head with the brain still inside and says, uh, oh, this is the ultimate souvenir. My missus will love this. I mean, that's very petcheneg behaviour. <laughs> it is very egg behaviour. But the thing is, if you actually read any military history about previous wars, really detailed ones, this always happened. I mean, yeah. this happened in World War Two. It happened in World War One. But there's something – Britain in the 1980s, with the exception of Northern Ireland, felt itself to be a country that had gone beyond all this. This just wasn't what happened. But the historian who's written about this most interestingly is um, a historian called Helen Parr, whose uncle Dave was in the Paras, I think, and he was killed uh, in the Falklands. And she talks about the sort of you know, the so-called atrocities. And one of the things she points out is actually by the standards of wars, there were very few major atrocities in the Falklands. And one reason for that is that 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 actually it's, as it were, a more gallant campaign, is that neither side is actually fighting for their own native land. Yeah. So they're almost fighting on a slightly neutral territory because the British soldiers have no great stake in the Falklands. I mean, it's not there. They've never been there before. Um, They do think of it as theirs, of course. And they feel a con- uh, some vague connection to the people who live there. But it's not the same thing as fighting for your hometown. So it doesn't have that intensity. And there's no civilians around. I mean, the civilians, the 1,800 civilians, are all kind of drinking tea and kind of hunkering down in their farmhouses. Um, so so I don't think it's a – it's not an especially bloody campaign from that point of view. Anyway, um, so it's basically three, two, three nights of fighting, and the Argentines just eventually kind of crumple
3: do they surrender do they officially surrender
0: they do eventually so you get to there's this amazing scene on the the 14th the morning of the monday the 14th of june so they've just fought they've the the british have moved on the scots guards have fought to the top of mount tumbledown and two para have got to the top of wireless ridge so now they have basically closed in on stanley and stanley which is by the way i mean we, it, it's the capital but it's a, a tiny town i mean it's by 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 the standards of most a large uh, village, yes, a large village, you know, yeah. really, um, and it's sort of laid out beneath them, and and the the most the famous thing that happens now is I talked about embedded reporters. So one of them is the Evening Standard's Max Hastings, and he's with um, he's on Wireless Ridge, so he's with the Paras, and he sits down and he writes his latest dispatch to the Evening Standard, and then he looks and he sees Stanley, and he sees the Argentines are kind of basically running back into the town. And he thinks to himself, you know, I could actually just go down there and I would be the first person there. And he hitches a lift with some paratroopers down the hill to the outskirts and then they stop to brew up some tea. And he just thinks, well, Might as well I'll, go just, in. I'll just go. And he starts – it's an amazing scene in his memoirs. He starts walking and he just walks along this lane. And um, one of the paras says, what are you doing? And Hastings just ignores him and keeps going. And he kind of goes around a corner and then he thinks, God, I'm kind of here. You know how it is when you've done a big yep. walk, and you, yep. and you, especially when you're walking downhill hmm. and you see the sort of village that you're walking to. And, and within, before the you path. know it, you're there. Yep. This is exactly what happens. And he sees a group of Argentine soldiers and he says to them, good morning. <laughs> and <they kind> of, <laughs> in Spanish and, or English? In, in English, I think. And they sort, of, um, they sort of say nothing. They look very miserable. And then eventually he bumps into a colonel. And Hastings says, Are you planning to surrender? And the colonel says, um, I think so. But it's, you know, I won't know until your general meets General Menendez. And Hastings is like, Oh, okay. Can I can I keep going? And the colonel says, Of course you can. So he just keeps going. And this is the funny thing that we talked about earlier that the Argentines generally were quite well behaved. I and mean, given their abysmal behavior to their own people, they were very, I think, as we said before they they have this sort of sense they have to be on their best behavior when they're fighting the British who they've envied and, you know, resented for so long. Mm. So he keeps going and lots of Argentines see him, but they don't shoot him or anything. They just sort of look away or glare at him or whatever. He ends up going to the pub. It's called the Upland Goose. And there's this incredible moment when he walks in and there are 20 people in the bar of the pub. And Max Hastings says to them, um, I'm with the British task force. And they all start clapping. And then the landlord says to him, we never doubted for a moment that the British would come. We've just been waiting for the moment.
3: Now, would you like a drink? And he says, yes. And he says, yes. Well, I think that's a splendid note on which to end. Um, We have one last episode. Uh, We will look at the aftermath of the war.
0: Why it mattered.
3: Um, Or did it matter? Yeah. Did it matter? Uh, We have a lot of questions. Um, So we'll go through some of those questions, trying to put the narrative that we've had in the kind of the broader context, the impact that the war had on Argentina, on Britain, yeah. uh, on the broader world, and
0: I shall be advancing on my thesis about the Falklands and Brexit. Well,
3: uh, that's exciting. A, it is a, exciting. San, a Sandbrook thesis, and um, people love talking about Brexit, don't they? They, they can't love get it. enough of it. Yeah, they love it. So we'll see you back on Monday for the final part of our Falkland series, or if you want to listen to it right now, join the Rest is History Club to get access to that episode. www.restishistorypod.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.